Hey everybody, this is Mike Van Meter and welcome to the Recovery is Possible podcast and I want to thank you for joining me and you can reach us at our Facebook site which is also called Recovery is Possible or our website which is vanmeterwellnesssolutions.com and this episode is sponsored by FHE Health, a substance abuse and mental health treatment center specializing in treatment for first responders needs including PTSD, anxiety and substance use. So take the first steps to a better life today by visiting FHE health.com. And as you guys know, we're here to educate the public about addiction, remove the stigma associated with addiction, and to offer any support and help that we can. And we do that by having guests on this show. And today I have with me Pete Souza. And Pete, I'm just going to give a little background how I met Pete. Those of you that listen to this podcast know that the last episode was Hillary Phelps, and it was through Hillary Phelps that she connected me to Pete Souza, and she said, you got to interview this guy. He's very, very interesting, and um, he, he and Hillary went to college together down at the uh, University of Richmond, which is a beautiful campus down there, and my actually, one of my kids looked at the University of R- Richmond, and I went down there and realized it was Way too much money, so they didn't go there. They went somewhere else. But uh, <laughs> Pete and I, he, Pete, you don't know this. You and I have a lot in common because Pete played football down there at University of Richmond, and I was in the band and I played tuba. So uh, I've watched a lot of football, and he's played a lot of football. <laughs> but he's the boy. Yeah, well, funny. <laughs> that, 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 that that's part of my story, and we'll we'll get to that. The whole football experience, yeah. Oh yeah, no, I look forward to it, and I uh, and, and I probably got all that wrong, but uh, I do know that you went to the University of Richmond. But hey, currently he's an anchor in Waco, Texas, a morning anchor out there uh, with KWTX, and that's a CBS affiliate affiliate out there in Waco. And I was in the Dallas FBI office northwest of that for uh, about ten years. But he's also play by play with ESPN and. Uh, been there about seven years. He's been doing the play-by-play, I think, about a year now. Uh, and again, and I know Pete. Um, I know you're thinking that with my stellar football career that you'll that you're going to be calling my plays. But yeah, I'm I'm old and broke, broken down now. So, uh, but with well, that, you've got you've, you've got you've got quite the experience when we when we look at you when we look at you when we look at your stats. It's not bad, you know, at DC police, the FBI. Uh, now you're working in the recovery field and. and you know, I work in your way to politics. I don't know, man. I think, <laughs> well, the, I think I, you look pretty good on paper. <laughs> yeah. That's been, you know what? That's been the story of my life, Pete. And that is, I look pretty good on paper. It's the delivery part that's the hard part, you know. But no, welcome to the show. Welcome to the show. Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me. And thank you for giving me the opportunity. Yeah, well, uh, you come very, very uh, highly recommended from Hillary Phelps, and she said that uh, you have a very, very uh, powerful uh, recovery story, and and it's something that our listeners are going to want to hear all about because we are about that experience, strength, and hope. And um, you know, addiction's a horrible thing, but the good news, Pete, is that we people can and do get better, right? And so, and that's your story, correct? It took me uh, it took me ten years to get a year, and that that's my story it doesn't have to be everybody else's story but i i finally when i surrendered i i really started to experience life uh and i hadn't been experiencing life i'd been you know prior to that i've just been constantly poured alcohol or drugs on any feeling that i i had had because i was i i was very fearful uh but yeah, as you talked about the fact that this thing works, uh, it, it works. Yes, the re- recovery works if you if you work it. I've learned that. 
So it's interesting. You said your sobriety date is 2012, correct? November? Well, November, see, it's November 7th, 2011. But by the time, so the first time I was able to get a year was in November of 2012. That was my, my one year anniversary. Oh, wow. Okay. So you and I were uh, pretty close. And and I also had um, about 10 years to get to the point where I could put that together. And um, if you if you don't mind, maybe kind of go back to the beginning and, and talk about like how did how did you get there? What what got you to that point? Sure. Where yeah, I, uh, you felt like you needed to get well. Well, it really wasn't even my choice. You know, I was one of those. I guess it was my choice, but I mean, it was either that or die, or just like or or go on existing. I certainly w- was not living. I, I to give you like the. The real background, I grew up outside of Philadelphia, but my, I, 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 my father, his family, all up and down my father's side, there was alcoholism. Uh, you know, the old, the old saying goes, um, uh, alcohol didn't, didn't run in my father's family, it galloped. I mean, a lot, there were a lot of alcoholics, but the majority on my dad's side was alcoholic. And he was born into an alcoholic household and it was from what I've heard pretty intense at times. And I think that he didn't want that for his children, but he certainly didn't know how to stop drinking. And he he didn't even, I don't, I don't know how deep he actually looked at it being a problem for himself. Uh, he was just always what you would call functional alcoholic. Uh, but I've heard it said before, you know, I don't really know how functional you are if you are characterized as an active alcoholic, but, I was born into this DNA, I believe. Uh, in my experience, both my brothers are sober, um, but man, we were all we were all pretty active out there. And uh, it was the last group we wanted to join was uh, you know being sober. But uh, the three of us are, p- are pretty tight now and have real meaningful relationships. I have meaningful relationships with both my brothers now. I didn't have any meaningful relationships when I was drinking and I have relationships with my brothers and you know how it goes Mm -hmm. many, many others, uh, now that I'm sober, but I, I, I remember I drank and I call it my first spiritual experience. I mean, I, you know, the first time I ever felt, um, I don't know if impaired is the word, but under the influence to a degree where, um, drugs were affecting me was I was one of those kids early on who was, prescribed Ritalin. I was ADD uh, and I was prescribed Ritalin. And I can remember going to, I went to St. Thomas Good Council, like I said, outside of Philadelphia. And I can remember going to the, I, I took one pill of Ritalin at home. This is like probably second or third grade. They started to be on this, maybe fourth grade. I'm not sure. I would take one pill at home and then I would take another pill at lunch. And I can remember going to take the pill at lunch and taking it and be like, okay, like I feel good. I feel good now. And I don't know whether that was kind of the placebo effect or what. I mean, I know that that's a controlled substance, right? That stuff is. And, uh, and if people are prescribed to take it, that's your business. For me, it wasn't anything I ever um, worked. It affected me very differently. I, I, I liked the way it made me feel. Um, and I can remember that as a kid. And I can remember also it planted this idea in my brain that I had to take something to do something a hundred percent. And, uh, I carried that with me until I stopped drinking. Um, you know, and I still carry that with me in sobriety some days. Like I feel like I'm not good enough. Like I have to do something. I have to drink a cup of coffee. I have to go for a run or 
you know, in some respects, respects that's true, right? You got to wake up or whatever, but and you want to be healthy, but uh, sobriety uh, when when practiced the right way. So I remember that was one of my my, my first like my first hit. Uh, you know, I can remember back in those days, and uh, then I started to drink when I was in like eighth grade uh, or ninth grade, and I can remember when I was in eighth grade, I was so nervous to go to dances and stuff. And when I was in ninth grade, I, I couldn't wait to get there because I was drinking and that was, I, I, I could talk to people. I could talk to girls. It, it for me, it was, I can't believe, you know, I'm 12, 13, 14 years old or whatever. And I haven't found this till now. Like this is going to be with me for the rest of my life. And for the, I, I, I really can tell you from the moment that alcohol first really worked for me, I, my next move was constantly predicated on, on my next drink, whether I know subconsciously or not, I was constantly moving towards the alcohol, the party. I was thinking about this today. I was a creative kid, lots of creative writing, lots of calling basketball and football games in front of down as though I was the announcer. Uh, just a really, really excitable uh, young kid. And the moment I took started to drink and, and, and started to take drugs. My whole life revolved around uh, that substance and, uh, and also partying and women, you know, the opposite sex. And I think a lot of that's connected to the ego side of it. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's, you know, that's where I went. I was, I drank all throughout um, high school pretty much. I started to take prescription drugs that, uh, that, that didn't belong to me uh, and uh, they were prescribed for me. And they, uh, they, I really like those. I, I could, you know, I was a good athlete. Uh, or, you know, I was, I was big. Uh, I, I was tall and I, and I put weight on lifting weights and I got offered a scholarship to play football at the university of Richmond. And my first big consequence, this goes back to our intro is I was going to play in a high school football all-star game in Philadelphia. And I had to get a physical before the all-star game. And you could, there was a, I had an arrhythmia in my heart, which I'd never had any any detected heart problems up until this moment. And the doctor said, this is spring going into my, or summer going into my freshman year in college. The the guy giving me the physical, the MD, was like, I can't, can't clear you to play in this game. Something's wrong with your heart, so I would like you to get a, a physical. I mean, go see a cardiologist if I'm going to allow you to play in this game. And I went to see the cardiologist, and they detected that I had cardiomyopathy. And that was the end of my football career. And the number one memory as an, as an addict and a sober person, now that I take away from that experience, was the doctor said to me, the cardiologist was like, you could have gotten this cardiomyopathy one of two ways. Uh, you could have gotten it through abuse of alcohol and drugs, or you also could have gotten it, it could be viral. You, your body was fighting a virus for so long, the virus goes away. Um, and your body attacks your organs as it, as it tries to fight the virus. And I was like, oh, it must have been viral. Right away, knowing that I had been taking a, a lot of drugs and I'd been drinking a lot. I'd also been lifting a lot and working out a lot. I think my body was just run down. I think, I, look, I don't know, right? I'm not a cardiologist, but it seemed like the perfect storm to me. And I, I would bet everything I have that uh, alcohol and drugs had something to do with that condition I developed. 
And so I went to Richmond. I stayed on scholarship. They had me contribute to the football team, but I never played. And looking back, I never processed that. Uh, I got to college right away, and I realized that I could drink. Luckily, I was involved with the football team, so they kind of they kept tabs on me. Not kind of, they did. And if I was if I was late for class, I had to go to study hall. I was part of the team. They did a great job of making me feel a part of. But I never processed the fact that I couldn't play. And you know, in in college, my drinking just went off the charts. And marijuana use was out of if. You know, we say marijuana is okay. If marijuana use can be out of control, I was out of control. I mean, I'd convince myself that I could do anything high, and I just was high all the time. And I, and I'll tell you, I never really did anything wrong to anybody when I was high, but I certainly wasn't helping myself. And it was just a, another way for me to kind of escape whatever the hell was going on. Uh, and I, I look now. I, 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 I was dating a girl in college. And she took Adderall and I really hadn't done any kind of speed since then. And I can remember, of course, what did I do? I, I, I literally was just drunk one time at her, at her dorm or something or her apartment. And I took one and I was like, Oh man, that's right. This stuff. And so that again created, uh, or, or just kind of reconnected me with, uh, with, with that speed. And I had a love affair with that stuff. So alcohol and speed were like, you know, French fries and ketchup to me all the time together and this is all by the way mike you know i have a bad heart and i go i, I get i get through college uh i i, I kind of just grease through but i i'd always gotten through on like a, a handshake a wink and a smile and i was always pretty entitled to i didn't realize this till again all these all these things that i can see clearly now i was born on third base thought i had a triple i've heard people say that and boy did that apply <laughs> I've never heard that did that that's, apply that's to good. me mm. I had two brothers who kind of were both athletes and they both kind of paved the way for me socially. My parents, I never had to really want for anything. I grew up in the suburbs of Philadelphia, a nice area. They call it the main line. It was good living, man. And uh, I, uh, I, I don't know. I thought it was always going to be that way. I graduated college. A, a friend of mine linked me up with a job in New York City. I was working for a sports agent and I was you know, you're partying all the time in New York. I had a great apartment on the Upper East Side. I mean, life was good. And uh, it didn't last for very long. I started to started to use cocaine. And, and uh, that's all I wanted to do, really, was drink and use drugs. And again, I had some God-given skills that I was able to tap into and contribute that may be somewhat attractive for some of this stuff I was a part of, right? But, you know, the moment I showed up and the moment it became... I became a consistent part of something. It was, I don't think it took people too long to figure that, wow, this guy is, uh, he's got something, he's got something else happening here. And as you continue to grow and you, other people are maturing and aging out of it. I, I was not. And I got my first DUI. Well, actually I got like a, I got a DUI that was knocked down to a reckless driving when I was at Richmond, but I got a DUI in Philadelphia. I had like literally, Everything that I had told you about that was kind of gift wrap for me out of college, I had, I had just thrown it all away to alcohol and drugs. And I got, I was back in Philadelphia with my parents, and I, um, I got into a, a car accident. You know, I took their car when I wasn't supposed to, and um, I was drunk. Uh, and that was my first introduction to AA. Was October of 2002, and I went and I and it and it worked, man. I saw. I, I forged some relationship with guys. 
I started to get that feeling um, that we get when we truly commit to, to the program. But I guess I, I never, I not guess, I never truly committed because I was two months in, I started smoking weed with my friends again. And, uh, I, you know, I masqueraded uh, as a sober person. I was consistently smoking weed, but still going to meetings. And I wasn't drinking. And, and I'll tell you, my, I, w- I didn't get any better, but I, w- I wasn't getting terribly worse. But what was happening was I was moving closer to a drink. There's no question about it. When I'm doing something that is altering my state, um, it's just waiting for me, right? The alcohol and drugs are just waiting for me. I, I get it. People are prescribed. But when I'm just taking my own will back and doing my own thing without with, with drugs, I'm, I'm, I'm moving back towards a drink. And that's what happened. I got a job in Colorado working for USA Basketball. And the moment the plane touched down, I started to drink again. And I continued to get opportunities. Uh, I moved on from Colorado, uh, USA Basketball. I worked for the Charlotte Hornets. And then I worked for the Philadelphia 76ers doing public relations. But I mean, at all this time, my drug use and my alcoholism is just off the charts. I mean, if I'm keeping it together at work a little bit, I'm not keeping it together at all in my personal life. I mean, if you were to walk inside any dwelling of mine at any of those times, you'd be like, what the hell? You know, there were beer cans and all kinds of paraphernalia or whatever. Maybe I cleaned it up once in a while, but I had all the, you know, to somebody who was in recovery, it was very clear that I was an alcoholic or a drug addict. Some other people, really couldn't put it together. But, you know, the first big consequence, like I mentioned, was the heart thing. Then there was the DUI. And then, and then you know, before I knew it, really, the big hit that I took were, were just relationships. And uh, it, it's, it's such a shame, you know, and I've said this, and it's, and it's still rough for me to say this, but, you know, steal your shit, help you look for it. You know, I was always, I, I was just all about getting mine and, and getting drunk and getting high. And I, uh, I, I had relationships with people, you know, like it talks about, right? Like in, in, in the, uh, the, the 12-step literature, uh, you know, AA, I'll just say AA, uh, um, you know, sorted lesser companions and sorted people. That's who I sought out. That was my life. Uh, and then, you know, eventually I lost my job with the Sixers. I was back home again living with my parents. Now I'm in my 30s. And uh, I'm... This is where it gets it got very scary for me, and this this to me was just a critical moment in my existence. I started to go to meetings, and I remember I wanted to stop and I couldn't stop, and mm-hmm. and I was like, I was so scared I couldn't I couldn't I was so scared any like real thought was just paralyzing. So I was constantly under the influence of something, um, and. Uh, Still trying to put it together on the outside, not doing not doing it a good job at all. And uh, you know the way my story w- goes and the way my recovery started was I was trying to stop. Like I said, I asked this guy to be my temporary sponsor at this meeting in Bryn Mawr, uh, Pennsylvania, or Haverford, Pennsylvania. It's called Five Sixty Two. It's still there. And uh, I asked this guy to be my temporary sponsor. He said yes, but I was just kind of doing it to kind of, I don't even know. I'm sure I was high at the time on something. And he said, okay, I'll pick you up and we'll, we'll go to a meeting. And unbeknownst to me, he had different plans. He picked me up and he took me to dinner. And Mike, I was like, damn it. Now I've got to sit across, <laughs> I've got to sit across from somebody and engage for who knows how long. And I was, you know, I don't I'd even know this my, guy. Yeah. No, I don't even know him. 
I'm, 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 I've been stealing my mom's Klonopin. I'm sure I'm on some of that. I'm not looking to, to just have any kind of moments with anybody but myself and, and alcohol and drugs. And the guy shares his story to me. We were at this restaurant called The White Dog in, in Wayne, Pennsylvania. He shared his story to me, and he said, I think you should go to rehab. Uh, that's what I did. And I don't know, you, you know, I, I, I have a higher power. I call it God. Um, that's who I pray to and stuff. And I don't even know if this was God or whatever. But at that moment, I was just like, I thought to myself, like, huh, I've, I haven't tried that one. And, and, uh, I thought to myself, okay, I think it was my ego telling me like, you got like one last trick up your sleeve to save your ass, you know? Um, and, uh, he said to me, you know, you need to go to rehab. And, uh, like I was, like I was mentioning, I, I it was probably my ego. I don't know. Or like I said, it could have been God, but I was like, I went home to my parents, right? I put my, my, my hands on my hips and I'm like, I got an idea. And they're like, oh, really genius, you know? And I'm like, I'm, I'm going to go to rehab. And, and they were like, I, internally, they must have been like, thank God. But they were like, <laughs> but they were like, you know, it says also in the literature, uh, like, let the alcoholic think it's his idea. I'm t- that's exactly what happened to me. I thought it was my idea. So, man, I moved with it, you know? And. I, I went to a place called Karen outside. It's like a typical alcoholic. I said, okay, well, I, I need a week. And I went and partied for another week. Um, and luckily, I, you know, I made it back. Some people might not make it back. I made it, I made it back home after a week. I went down to Charlotte, some of my old haunts, and saw some of my old friends. And then I went off to, uh, to treatment. And I am telling you, the moment I walked in that place, well, I, I, I don't really remember the first – day I walked in, I was still under the influence, but the moment I walked in, uh, and really was, had my wits about me, let's say, uh, I was, I was ready. I mean, I was done. I mean, you hear the story about the alcoholic or the drug addict who is, whose life they have nothing going and they have all these people who matter and care about them on the outside being like, look, there's like a, a million hands extended to them. Like, we'll help you. And, and you're sitting there guarding this, this nothing of a life that you have. Like, no, stay away from me. I mean, it's really, really horrible to think about, uh, but it's the reality. Uh, it was the reality of my case. And when I walked into that rehab, man, things changed because I, I just, I think they plugged me right into the 12 steps. Um, I started to share about how I felt. That started to feel good. I couldn't, I didn't have any opportunities to leave or you know, go somewhere else. And, uh, I started to follow suggestions when I, um, when I got done there, they said, Hey, um, we think you should go to a, a recovery house. And I thought that's a good idea. And that was not of me. Uh, everybody else, uh, that I was, you know, compadres with and guys, well, some guys I'm still friends to this day, in my rehab, we were all trying to get out of going to the extended care. You know, anybody Karen was like, they're trying to, yeah, whatever, brainwash us and send us somewhere else. Like, hey, man, as it was put to me, it's a couple months for the rest of your life. I did that, and uh, I, I really got humbled in this uh, halfway house. I was in Maryland. I worked for a, a Kentucky Fried Chicken. Uh, you know, I, I was like, 
I, I tell the story, you know, I walked into KFC. I was terrified my first day. I looked at the register like it was uh, the Millennium Falcon controls, you know, like it was like <laughs> I, I wouldn't let the woman who taught me out of my sight. Uh, and, uh, you know, I had that fight or flight, too. I mean, there'd be like a long line with like 25, 30 people. And I would be like, I'm going to the bathroom. They'd be like, dude, there's 30 people in line. Where are you going? And because I, I, I was scared, you know, mm-hmm. um, and uh, I learned how to work through those fears and I learned how to work the register and I learned how to deal with some guy that showed up looking for his chicken pot pie every day right at 12.05 and would lose his mind if it wasn't ready, um, you know, and I also learned to deal with other guys like that. I always tell the story that, you know, there was one time a guy comes up to uh, comes up to the drive through window and he's giving me attitude. He's like, hey, well, where is everybody? It's taking forever in there. And I got the headset on, you know, and I, I, I tell the guy, I'm like, I'm sorry, sir. The chickens, one of the chickens got loose in the back. And he's like, <laughs> he's like, you got chickens in there? I'm like, no, we don't have chickens. Just relax. I'm slaughtering the chicken now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it's, 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 it's experiences like that that remind me that uh, I started to have fun early on. And uh, I started to enjoy life. And. I, it was all about recovery. So whenever I get jammed up today, I always remember, man, I was having fun when I was working at KFC. I can, I can figure this out. But yeah, I, I got done living in that halfway house. I, I lived in a, I moved, my story is I, I moved in with a guy that I was went to rehab with and w- lived in that halfway house with. We lived in the halfway house for four months. And then he and I were roommates together in Jersey City, New Jersey. We worked for a guy who owned a catering company in New York city, who was also sober, who just literally, but the goodness of his heart, he was like, I'm going to employ you guys. And you know, uh, you guys just keep doing your thing, going to meetings. And we all kind of stuck together, the three of us. And we're all, all three of us are sober today. Steven and Tim, like guys from, uh, from rehab. And, uh, it's just, uh, that I, I really start, I, I really hit the 12 steps hard. I hit meetings hard. I hit recovery hard. That was the only thing that made me feel very good. Um, and for, for me, you know, if I'm going to meetings and I'm involving myself in, in that recovery, I'm going to meet people who are going to be good for my life. And they'll get me into the other aspects of recovery. Uh, I'll get into the steps. I'll get into the fellowship. I'll start to do service commitments. But for me, it starts with that human-to-human contact in AA meetings. I love, I have Zoom meetings that I love. There's nothing for me like walking into a meeting. Uh, it's just that there's something special about it. You got you, you to gotta go out of your way. You have to, maybe there's somebody sitting next to you you don't know. Uh, it, it's it just kind of, it's good. It gets the blood going, man. For me, it's a, it's a big deal. So I started to go to meetings again in Hoboken, New Jersey, in New York City, in Jersey City. And I was on fire, man. And I started to get on my computer and I started to lean on relationships I had, told people I was sober. At this point, it's like over a year, you know, and I started to get opportunities. I got an opportunity to work in the NBA Development League, calling basketball games, doing uh, play-by-play for the Brooklyn Nets um, D-League, which is now the G-League affiliate. And I reached their, their general manager at the time was Billy King, and he gave me like one of my first big breaks. Billy was my boss in Philadelphia, my ultimate boss. And uh, he he... I, he, I don't know. He felt that he felt he, he felt uh, valid, or he, he was moved to go to go to bat for me. Um, and uh, 
that really launched my career back or into broadcasting. And I started that's cause that's what I wanted to do. And I called games and then I got, I worked for the Hornets again in Charlotte and did radio for them. Uh, I mean, there's a story I tell, and this is like, it's just, it's worth telling because it's interesting. And if I'm a guest, I want to be interesting and relevant. I was, <laughs> and you uh, are, <laughs> you know, yeah. So I, I was working for the, for the Hornets and I did radio for them. Um, this is right before I really bottomed out. I started to do some broadcasting and I did radio for, for, for the Hornets. They were in the playoffs and I was on drugs, man. I was at the game. I was high on drugs. And all I was thinking about is how can I get more drugs? And the guy who owns the team is Michael Jordan. And he walks by me. I'm down on the floor. Uh, I'm doing like halftime and pregame shows and stuff like that for the radio broadcast. So I've got time in the tw- during the game. And I'm by my team. And Michael Jordan, who was always like, you know, he and I had never huddled up and had conversations. But he knew who worked for him. And he was just a, I, he's a good guy. Uh, and, uh, he's trying to get to his seat and he kind of pats me on the back. And I was like, Whoa, I was like jumpy and I was startled. And, uh, I was almost like, wow, like shaken up that by this situation where I should have been so in the moment and so happy and, and been so plugged in. And I wasn't, I wanted to leave that game, uh, and, and go get a drink. And, you know, I, I made it through, uh, and that's the story of my life. I was just muscling through everything. So circle back, I'm, I'm working with the Hornets. I, and I never kind of lived that down. I was always like, man, you're kind of, you're such a loser. You know, like uh, you just can't, here's a situation that should have been so fun for you. And you should have been on your way up carving out a career in broadcast. And you just, you wanted to get out of there. And you know, that, that's, that was a dark place for me. And fast forward, I was probably four years sober. I was back working for the Hornets doing radio again. And I remember again, I had no relationship with Michael Jordan besides the fact that he may have recognized that he worked. I worked for him. And, you know, I think he, he heard my name some a couple of times, but I walked by him in the hallway and he slapped me on the back again. Four years later, I'm sober. And I remember thinking like, Oh, thank God. Thank God. I got an opportunity to, to, to do this the right way. And I just, again, that I stayed plugged in. I went to a ton of meetings when I was back working in Charlotte uh, again, this is all, I'm, I'm moving around here a lot, but this is, that's the story. You know, I went from Jersey city, uh, then I moved back to, or was up in Springfield, Massachusetts, working in the D league. And then I was in Charlotte working for the Hornets and this is all sober. And then I got a job working in TV news and I was in a, I, I wanted to do that cause I was doing morning spots on the Fox affiliate in Charlotte. And I love that. So I worked in Monroe, Louisiana doing TV news mm-hmm. and from there. I went to Waco, Texas, and you know, all along the way, I have been able to connect with people uh, in recovery and in sobriety, and I have so many meaningful relationships and opportunities just kick me in the ass when I'm when I'm not looking for them, and when I'm and when I'm doing the right thing. I was sitting here in my apartment in Central Texas a month or two ago, and uh, I get an email from. ESPN, they're like, hey, can you, we need you to work these four baseball games, uh, you know, national television. I'm like, sure. You know, and I, and I get my ass to those games. And, uh, you know, I, I, I tell the story now. It's sort of glorious, but if, damn if it isn't true. I, I took the pin I wore at KFC up into the broadcast booth with me uh, when I called those games. And I just had that with me. I still have it. Uh, and, uh, 
it's one of those things like every time I move, I'm like, should I get rid of this? I'm like, yeah, let's keep it. And uh, I, I, I had it with me and I just would look at that and be like, and this is, this is cool. You know, um, this is, uh, this is working, you know, the next time I think I don't need a meeting, like, come on. And uh, you know, that's my life. It's just been, I've been, I've been very lucky and it's conversations like these that make, like this that make me tap into how lucky I am because, yeah. you know, I, I can, I can get away from, from the gratitude. And, uh, you know, the thing, one of the reasons how I came on your radar is because of my relationship with our, our mutual friend, Hillary, but also my podcast. And mm-hmm. that's another thing where I was like, I never would have imagined that I would have a podcast that people might actually listen to where guys like you would come on and share their, their stories. You know, I've had everybody from, you know, Ryan Leaf, Tony Mandrich, you know, a lot of athletes. That's kind of been my sweet spot. Uh, and, uh, it just recently a guy dug over 10 who got sober, Chris Terry and a NHL guy. It's awesome. Um, and I've been very, very lucky to have, have a platform where people will, will join me and talk about, you know, their sobriety, but it's a, it's a good life, man. It's uh, it, it's a great deal. Yeah, no, it is. And, and I'll tell you that, that really is an amazing story, but it, it just shows you where life can take you. You know, life, we, we say in recovery that, Life not only gets better, it can't not get better once you once you put drinks and, and drugs away. And drinking and drugging keeps us from our potential. It there's there's people out there that just have so much potential in, in whatever area that they choose to go into, but but drugs and alcohol are holding them back. And yours is a story of just showing, you know, what you're absolutely capable of doing if you put it aside and focus on those things that give you pleasure. Because to circle back a little bit, you know, you were talking about um, your mar- you, you were under the influence of something. If it wasn't alcohol, it was something. It was clonopin, it was marijuana, it was all those different things, right? And you yeah. mentioned that this was escape. And that's, see, I never understood. And, and maybe you and I both went through uh, a treatment. And I, I remember the first time I went to treatment, I never understood the, the big How book. many times did you go? Did you go you went more than once? Twice. Twice. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And then relapsed after that. And then, because yeah. I'm, oh, I'm a slow learner. I get it. I, I, I'm a slow oh, I learner. It. I was just curious. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, yeah. uh, and when I remember when I was handed the, uh, and, and not, it, it, it listen, there's there's programs out there. And, and if and if you're listening to this and you're in a program that is not AA and it works for you, God bless you. That's that's fantastic. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Thank you for saying uh, but I, I was, I'm an AA guy, obviously, uh, Pete, you're, you're an AA guy. And, and I just remember, uh, and I think this is true of all programs, not limited to AA. I, I did not, to me, when I, when I got into treatment, I would, I just thought, oh, they're going to, they're going to teach me how to stop drinking. Right. That, that's what the, that, that, and I thought it was going to be focused on that. And when they handed me this book and I started reading it, I thought, what the heck is this? They're talking about spirituality. They're talking about uh, clearing house, cleaning my side of the street, uh, making amends. What the heck is this all about? And then I thought, oh, they're trying to sell me on religion. Oh, I got it. Ooh, quick one, you guys. Like, I didn't understand it. I didn't understand what that was all about. And really what it it was about was um, I didn't understand that recovery was about uh, it, it, recovery is not about, and I want people to listen to very closely what I'm saying here because it, it's, d- it's simple but but deep at the same time. Getting it, going through treatment 
and then getting into recovery is not about learning to not drink or drug. It's a learning. It's about learning to not start drinking and drugging, and that's a very subtle difference. You know, you go to detox and treatment to stop, but then the whole program that we're talking about is to keep you from starting back again. And that, when you when you start, it's because you're uncomfortable with yourself, you're uncomfortable with the situation, and and you somehow we have not learned how to deal properly with issues in life. And that's really what it's all about. And I didn't understand that in the beginning. I do understand that now. And ironically, when I got it is when I started to get sober. But you talked about escape, like you were using because you were escaping. What were you trying to escape? You know, I was trying to escape my feelings. I was trying to escape any kind of uncomfort, right? I'm like, I've noticed this and I've learned this about myself. I'm just a feel-good junkie. So... If I didn't feel good, uh, you, put it this way. I realized the first time I drank that I could talk to girls. I liked that. That made it easy, right? I realized that I could. I had courage that I just didn't have before in so many other uh, aspects of life. And uh, I liked that. I liked the easy button. And alcohol for me for so long was the easy button. And by the time I didn't know it, it was, you know, it wasn't the easy button. By the time it wasn't the easy button anymore, I couldn't even fi- I couldn't find any buttons. You know, I was totally lost. I could, there certainly wasn't a stop button. Uh, so that for me, it was an escape of feelings. I didn't like feeling. Um, I didn't like feeling any kind of emotional pain. You know, I've heard a guy say this in a meeting too. You can hit me over the head with a hammer, and that's fine. But how dare you hurt my feelings? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> yeah. And that's kind of. And that's, I think that's, that's how I am. One thing to jump in on what you said, I heard a guy say this uh, just recently in a meeting. Um, It's way easier for me to stay sober than to get sober. Yeah. Oh oh my God. Is that not the truth? Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. I mean, this this is the easier, softer, gentler way. This is. For sure. And I know that if I drink again, uh, I don't know that I'll, I don't know that I'll get back. And I know that I'm here today and I know what this thing offers. So I just got to stay connected. You know, it's funny that you say that because I, those of of you that are in recovery and have been in recovery for a while have probably run into this before. But you have those moments where you're faced with a situation where you kind of look at, you know, somebody else drinking or maybe alcohol just ends up in front of you. If you're in a situation, you think, oh, I could do that. Nobody would know about it. And I, uh, uh, so one of my kids is home from college right now. And, um, you know, she's not alcoholic and, you know, she, she drinks on occasion and, you know, she's just staying here for the summer. She's interning at a, at a company here in Washington, DC. And, uh, she was at a dinner party with one of her friends and I guess they had given her a bottle of wine and, uh, and and it's opened and it's like halfway open and it's in her room. And I had to go into the room to get something the other day and I see this bottle and you know, it's funny. It just shows you the alcoholic in me is still there even after a decade because, uh, you know, I'm sure you know what I'm thinking, Pete. I look at this bottle and I'm thinking, Ooh. And I could hit that real quick. Oh, and yeah, nobody, yeah, yeah. right? Right. And that just yeah. shows you. And that's all actually, it's kind of a good reminder that A, it doesn't go away. But you know, my thought. I my, totally, dude, I totally agree. It's 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 kind of healthy. It's yeah. humbling. It's healthy. It's look, man, you didn't drop to your knees and like lose your mind. No. It's just one of those things that happens to me. Joe Namath is sober and he's, uh, I heard him tell the story once. He calls that voice in his head slick. 
You know, his sponsor used to tell him that guy is slick. You know, slick is tells you, hey, man, maybe you can have a drink. Maybe, yeah. You got to tell slick to go kick rocks. You know? Oh, yeah. Well, no, but here, but here's the thing. So I look at this bottle and first thought for, I mean, like didn't even blink. It was like, wow, I could hit that and nobody would even notice. But then, you know, what, what I realized is, and it relates to what you just said, and that is that being sober is easier than than getting sober. But I knew, I knew this is like half a bottle of wine. And I know when the hell have I only drank half a bottle of wine, right, as an alcoholic. And I knew that, that, that there, there's not enough in that bottle to even get me out the door to go get more. I mean, I just knew that. And I knew that the run and the journey back, because I would just go out and drink uh, anything in my town here. I, if I could get my hands on it, I would drink it. And to come back from that was just, I just remember how so much work it was to get to where I am. I'm like, yeah, I don't have the energy to do that. I, I don't have the energy to do that anymore. And, uh, yeah. and I'll tell you. I, That's I tell a great you. point. Too. There's also that. I think I, I'm fortunate that uh, I really got it when I was in my 30s. Like, it's almost like mid, I was mid 33, uh-huh. but it's like, okay, I'm done. And I know people get sober when they're 20. I know people get sober when they're 60 or 70. But for me, like that was a that was a pretty nice age to stop because uh, it's like, what are we doing here? I'm yeah. exhausted. Well, everybody else seems to have like some kind of a life. I gotta get I gotta get going here. Yeah, and you know what? Uh, it's funny. And you talked about um, human because you made a couple of good points here that that if if people are listening, you know, and what's a profound about this whole discussion is. People that listen to this that are struggling or either A, in recovery or B, trying to get into recovery can relate to what we're talking about. You talked about human contact. And I want you to bear with me a minute on this, uh, Pete, because when I'm done saying this, you're going to go, this is a weird dude. But I don't know. Let me just lay this on you. See what you think. Yeah. All right. So you talked about human contact. That's, That's what you're looking for. And that's a very common theme, actually, is... You know, those of us that are alcoholic, we're looking for just significant context. A lot of people, a lot of people on this podcast talk about that. Hillary talked about that in the last episode, that wanting to connect with other human being. And what's interesting, and me being sort of a social observer, a people, I'm a people person. I, I study people. That's what I've done my whole life. And and I've noticed some interesting connections that when I would go to AA meetings or I'd be in treatment and the way that people, and to a certain extent, the way that I would talk about my relationship with alcohol would almost be like I was talking about a person, if you think about it. Uh, People in treatment would say, oh, I feel like I'm in mourning. I'm in mourning over the fact that I'm having to give up drugs or alcohol. And that's funny because we mourn people that we've lost or loved ones, a pet, something like that, or a person. Um... I feel like I'm having a divorce. Well, we divorce people. We don't divorce things, if you think about it. And and I thought about that. And one day I was walking through a mall and I see a store, a wine store, and it says wine and spirits. And then I thought about that for a minute. And I go, that's an interesting way to refer to it. Spirits. We call hard alcohol spirits. Yeah. Well, a spirit is a living entity, right? It's not a thing. A spirit is like, you know, an entity. And but but yet we refer to alcohol as spirits, and I always thought that that was interesting, and because it is it, it you know I know alcohol used to talk to me, but people talk to me, and I remember once that um, about six years into recovery, I was training for a half Ironman, and I was on my last bike ride, and I ended up crashing my bike pretty hard, it, like broke half my body, 
you know, it, it was a, it was a bad. This is this was going to be a, a few days in the hospital for sure, and some surgery. And I knew that once it happened. But leading up to that, my sponsor had said to me, you know, you need to be ready for the big day. The big day's coming. You know, the big day's coming. And what he meant to that by that was, you know, get the basics, get the basics of the program because you're going to be tested. And mm. today was the day that uh, that day was the day that my recovery was tested because. And this is the first time I really knew that my addiction hadn't gone away because I'm in the back of the ambulance and I can hear the paramedics talking about how much morphine they were going to shoot me up with because they said, damn, he broke a lot of stuff. And, you know, give him whatever, you know, milligrams of morphine. And immediately I went, oh, yeah. Uh Like, I didn't even think about the fact that I broke about half my body. All I cared about Uh was I'm going to be able to party tonight. That was weird. I knew I was going to be able to party. And then I thought, yeah. But a tagline my sponsor had was, but you need to tell on yourself, tell on yourself, tell on yourself. And what he meant was, let them know you're in recovery. And so I I said to these guys, uh, hey, um, you guys, I'm in recovery. You need to cool it, cool it with the the morphine. And uh, what I didn't realize later when I ended up in the emergency room, about two or three hours later, when I'm just balled up in pain, crying, crying like a baby, you know, the doctor walked in and said, wow, you must be a tough guy. And I said, why is that? Is I've got tears in my eyes. She goes, because I've never seen anybody with that many broken bones refuse all medication. And I went, huh? What are you talking about? She said, yeah, the paramedics told me that you refused all medication. I was just wondering, is that a religious thing? You know, why, why are you doing that? I said, I have no idea what you're talking about. I said I was in recovery. And she said, oh, it's not a religious thing? And I said, wait a minute, have you given me Tylenol or anything? And she goes, <laughs> No, they said you refused all medication. (laughs) And then that's when I realized, oh, words mean things. (laughs) I guess the communication's great. But, uh, and then we worked through, you know, getting in the hospital. I I realized that, no, when you you have surgery, there's certain things you have to do. And and there's ways that folks in recovery can, you know, get through these situations. But uh, but my point to that story was that it talked to me. My addiction talked to me. It's a wow, weird thing, yeah, isn't it, Pete? Yeah. Well, no, I can look, and I've talked about, I talked about this in my podcast about a year ago. I had, I mentioned my heart issue, mm-hmm. and I eventually, with some help, got got around to getting a, a defibrillator put in, put in. But I got mm. it put in last year, and uh, I, my girlfriend was a part of this too. I, I, um, I, I get done surgery, right, and I'm coming out, and you know that. I consented to, they were going to put me under, uh, and, uh, I was, I was under some heavy stuff and I oh, came yeah. out and I remember thinking the first thing I thought was, how can I keep this going? First yeah. thing I thought, Oh yeah. how can I keep this going? Bargaining about getting pain meds. And, uh, you know, I took pain meds for like a day and then my, my girlfriend, she's in recovery too, kind of called me on it. She was like, yeah, him, fork him over, pal. Like, you know, she was actually governing him the whole time, but she was, she, she was like, it's time to get rid of these. I was like, let's, yeah, let's get rid of them. And it was just like, I, I needed, and the moment we got rid of them, I felt better. Yeah. Um, and I didn't care about any, you know, of course, like you said, you need to take, you can't go have surgery without, you know, you, you need narcotics and you need, you, you have to be logical and talk to your sponsor and, you know, get the best medical treatment you can. But at the same time too, you know, when you're bullshitting yourself Yeah. and, uh, you know, I didn't, I didn't need any, I didn't need any more pain medication. It'd been a day, but I was good. 
uh, and I got rid of them. And it, that was cleansing in itself. Um, and it, they were, but, but to your story, it was talking to me, dude. Mm-hmm. I don't think it talks. It doesn't talk to the regular people. They just, no, no, it doesn't. And the key to the key to that is that like you, like me, I, uh, one thing I will say is that I, brought people because i didn't know i actually thought i actually thought i was going to have to go through that whole process with no drugs but you know listen you know this isn't the 1700s i mean if people are cutting <laughs> you open which i had to have a plates put in my shoulder and i mean they were cutting me open i mean look nobody and if you're listening to this and, and you're in recovery I, w- I want to be very clear about this nobody is asking you to go through that i mean there are things that you're going to have to do but there's a way that you do it and and just like pete said i surrounded myself with people that were in recovery I made it known. In fact, in the hospital, it was kind of like the running joke. I remember every every nurse, whoever brought food in, everybody, I was like, hey, you know, I'm in recovery. And, and I remember one nurse, you know, the, they switched over the shifts. And I remember I said to the nurse, uh, hey, I just want to let you know I'm in recovery. And she looked at me and she goes, honey, we all know you're in recovery. I think the valet down in the parking lot knows you're in recovery. <laughs> <laughs> and I, uh, you know, but that, but that, but you know what though, Pete, it showed that I was taking it very, very seriously. And, yeah, and I, I, I did not handle the medication. Yeah. I, I, you know, I, my wife handled it. Uh, I did not. And, and then we weaned me off. But the thing is, I did not make the decision and I did not control it. Other people did. And we got off. Yeah. And that's important. I mean, that, that again is surrendering and turning it over. Mm-hmm. I, I, the about the story to what you're saying, everybody knew. I couldn't get away from it. A guy who I go to meetings with was, was, he was the tech or he was the representative from Boston Scientific. He was in the room um, when I got, you know, when I got this thing put in my chest. And he was in the room. When I, he was the lighting, a guy I told. This is a guy in recovery who's, you know, in the room, the, the OR. And I tell him, I said, Alan, I'm dancing with the devil. This is the last <laughs> thing I told him before I went out. Yeah. But it's nice to know, right? The more that we go. And that's kind of what we're talking about here. The more we. A guy told me this too, right? And and I think you'll appreciate this, and hopefully people listening can can appreciate it too. And if you don't, this is something that maybe a, a learning uh, opportunity. AA twelve steps. It's not a tunnel to more meetings. It's a bridge to life. Yeah. And and like so, you go out there. There's no place I can't go, right? I mean, if I have singleness of purpose and I have a reason to be there. Um, and there's, you know, I know when to, now I know when to go home. I know if I'm sticking around because I got, I'm, I'm trying to be the cool guy or my ego tells me I don't need to go. Um, I mean, honestly, that never happens anymore. I just, you know, I'm 45. I'm just constantly trying to get home anyways. But, <laughs> uh, but, but at the same time I do, I live, I live life. I go I do things that are uncomfortable. I, I, I wind up places um, where I'm connecting with new people and, and, new experiences, new opportunities. That's not of me. That, that's recovery. It's mm-hmm. that bridge to life. All the things that I used to drink and take drugs to have the courage to do, I do now on the wings of, of recovery. And, and, and that moves me now. Uh, and like you said, you brought up such a good point, man. When, when, when you, the, if you can stay vigilant, right, you, you don't really have so much of those voices talking to you or, you're telling yourself you're not good enough. You, you have your down moments, right? But if you're really connected to uh, to your recovery, uh, it's that stuff doesn't happen too often. You're more moved towards the positive actions than the negatives, and you're less inclined to move closer to a drink. You move further from it. 
Mm-hmm. Oh, that is so well said. And I love that. A bridge to life. A bridge to life. Because it is. You know, in recovery, you think that you're going to have to give up everything to do this one thing. But in reality is you just give up the one thing so you can do everything. I mean, look at your life now. Look at your life now. Do you not pinch yourself and think, how the heck did I get here? I'm on ESPN. I'm a morning anchor. You know, I'm doing all yeah. this stuff. Do you just pinch yourself and go, how the hell did that happen? No, but I mean, I, I when somebody like you says it and I pause and I like I just told my story. Yeah, I do pinch myself, but I need to. I, I think I get caught up sometimes in where I'm going um, that I lose sight of that gratitude, right? I'm a human being and I have ambitions and stuff. Uh, so I appreciate you saying that because that's where I need to be. Yeah, I need to be. I need to be pinching myself. I need to be enjoying the ride, right? Because the thing about it is, regardless of what I have intended for myself, I, there's a I have a purpose, and you know, it's helping people, and it's just being there. And it's just connecting with other people, and then when I'm when I'm in that frame of mind, that's when that's when things happen for me. You know, yeah, um, yeah. It's like but it, but it's such that. a testimony. Yeah. You know, where you are now is such a testimony to what reco- what can happen. Oh man, when I, you're people in didn't recovery. want me anywhere. Yeah, people didn't like it. Had gotten. I just was telling them they had like a little intervention for me, like probably a month or two before I got went to rehab. There was like nobody even left to go to the intervention. It was like my dad and my brother. It was my dad, my mom, and my brother Mike, and that was it. Everybody else was like, yeah, "This no. guy is a goner." Yeah, we and they were doing it for themselves, right? Let's just keep our distance from this guy. We got to take care of ourselves. Yeah. Well, sometimes that's what happens. You know, we become toxic, yeah. and and that's another. Actually, down the road, I'm, I'm going to do may, maybe the next time you're on this podcast, we can talk about you know toxic people because when you get into reco- no, we we were the toxic people in other yeah. people's lives, but yep. uh, in recovery, that was something that just came up recently uh, as a topic, uh, recovery topic that I thought was a good one. Is you know when you get into recovery protecting yourself and sometimes you know uh there's some people that just should not be in our lives anymore and those are toxic people but the nice thing is in recovery we went from being that person to now we need to be careful of people that are like that and uh but that's a really good point and then you'd see see that was one of the um a pete just one little quick story here at the end of my drinking one of those epiphany moments for me was i actually kind of looked at myself at the end, you know, I mean, and it sounds a bit morbid, but I, I think people should, I think there's a, if you kind of look at the end of your life and look at where you're going, because um, I, I, hopefully this is not news to anyone, but none of us get off this planet alive. I, I don't know if that's <laughs> news to people, but uh, everybody dies at some point. And I, again, I don't mean to be morbid. It's just the reality. But I think if you look at, at the end of your life, and by the way, none of us knows when that is going to be, but picture what do you want people to say about you when you leave? And that was an epiphany moment for me. Like I had this vision of laying in the grave and looking up out of the grave. And scenario number one was there was no one there except for my my family, my wife and, and two kids. And uh, it was questionable at that point whether they were going to be there. But in, in this the vision I had, they were there. And I remember my son in particular looking down and going, what a waste. What a waste. This guy died from his alcoholism. 
when he could wow. have done so much for the community and for people. And, you know, he, if, he could have done so many things for his country, but, but he wasted it. And then the other vision I had was being sober and lots of people being around the grave and my son looking down and going, this, hey, this is not a time to be sad. If you want to know how to live life, that guy did it. He overcame. He overcame his addictions. He came overcame his addictions, uh, demons and addictions. And look at what he was able to do for his family, his community, and his country. And if you want to know how to live life, folks, that's how you do it right there. Wow. And that, that yeah. was the day I realized that. That's a good exercise for anybody. For yeah. anybody. I mean, it's clear. It's obvious you're, you're, you got your foot uh, in the, um, or, or your, your feet in the, the recovery world. I mean, that's, that's pretty obvious. That's, that's a great exercise, I think, for, for somebody that's in the throes to do. Yeah. Hey, folks, if you're listening to this right now, and if you're listening to this, there's probably a reason why you're listening to this. Think about that. What do you want to be remembered for when you leave planet Earth? Because you will. And how do you want people to think about it? And, you know, guys like Pete here are getting every ounce of life out of every single day. I remember um, one of the treatment centers I went through was uh, uh, Ashley, which is up in Maryland. It was it was co-founded by Father Joseph Martin. And uh, those of you in the recovery world probably have heard of him, the famous Chalk Talk series. And yeah. he was quoted once as saying that when you get into recovery, your only regret is going to be that there are only 24 hours in a day because you're going to have so much to do. There is not enough time in the day to do everything you need to do. And I think that's true. Uh, it's true. Yeah. Yeah, because you got the one thing that there's rest too. You got to rest. You got to have time for that. And mm -hmm. uh, yeah, that's so true. And you're living that, man. You're living the dream. And it's it's been an honor and a pleasure to have you on on the show as a guest. Uh, let's do this again. Well, we're gonna do. You're gonna join me on my podcast, The Payoff. So yeah, oh, we're gonna do it yeah. again soon. Yeah, I, I'm looking forward to that. And folks, you know, please check out his, uh, uh, Pete Souza's podcast is called the, the Payoff with Pete. And please, please check that out. And uh, I will be on there. And uh, I actually looking at the guests that you have, I don't know how I made it to that list, but because you have some like really good people on there. <laughs> I you are there. a great person and a great <laughs> guest. And I really can't wait to dig into your story. Oh, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. And so, folks, uh, so as I always like to say, I don't represent any group and, and I don't represent anyone other than myself. And the same is true for Pete. Now, I know we, we talk about, uh, we're talking about programs that work for us, AA in particular, but again, we're not promoting that. We don't represent AA. Nobody does. But uh, there's a lot of programs that are out there. If you find one that works for you, God bless you and please keep it up. You know, the important thing is that you just stay sober. And our only purpose in giving this information is to share with you what we've done because it's it's helped us and maybe it will help you as well too. That's all absolutely. we're trying to do, right? Yeah. And yeah, uh, absolutely. All, yeah. all I have is my experience, man. I don't have any answers. That's all we have is our experiences. Yeah. And and if you can learn from it, great. But if you adapt whatever you're doing for yourself, because uh, that's again that's what we do in recovery and we help ourselves along the way and and it helps us as much as it is it helps you maybe even more and with that again folks our good friends over at fhe health the episode has been sponsored by fhe health and according to samsa first responders are 30 percent more likely to develop behavioral health conditions like ptsd 
And FHE Health specializes in getting first responders better and cleared for duty. Hey, check them out at FHEHealth.com. That's FHEHealth.com. With that, please visit our Facebook page, which is Recovery is Possible, and our website, VanMeterWellnessSolutions.com. Let me know if I'm how I'm doing. Let me know if there's a, a topic that you'd like to hear about because I'd like to present that to you if possible. You guys take care of yourselves, and we will see you next time. Pete, thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Mike.